Hello there and welcome back, finally, to the Paradox Podcast. We've been on hiatus trying to get everything ready for our in-person services and we've been able to catch our breath this week. My name is Craig Hadley and I'm one of the pastors here at Paradox. And today we are starting a series in the book of Judges. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible by donating at paradoxgiving.com. I really appreciate your willingness to stand by us, especially throughout the entire pandemic. This sermon that you're about to hear is designed to start a discussion, not end one. And so we want you to know that we welcome disagreement. Today, we'll be looking at Judges chapters four and five, and this sermon is entitled The Judgment of Jael. Judges chapter 4 verse 1 reads, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Ha-Goim. Now it's important to take notice of the name Sisera here, because Sisera is considered to be the main villain of the story of Judges 4. So we read that Sisera is the Canaanite general whose base is in Hazor. Now we read in Judges 4.3, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. This is an imposing number because the chariot is the tank of the military world in Sisera's day. We then read that these 900 chariots enabled Sisera and the Canaanites to oppress the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. In verse 4, we're introduced to one of the heroes of the story, according to the story, a woman named Deborah. We read, at that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. Now, it's important to make a note here that judges takes place before there were kings in Israel. So rather than having a unified nation of 12 tribes, there were instead these local judges that were viewed to be sent by God that exist as heroes within the Israelite community. Deborah is the only female judge in all of the book of Judges. We then read in verse 5, She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. So let's picture this scene, shall we? The female judge, Deborah, sits underneath a palm tree in the middle of nowhere. This location is such a nowhere that it's listed as being between two cities, which are not major cities at all during this time. So she's sitting out in the middle of the desert underneath a palm tree, and she decides to send a message to a man named Barak who is in the northern section of what is modern-day Israel. This is in the middle of 20 years of oppression at the hands of Sisera and his 900 chariots. She writes via messengers to Barak, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulon. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. As we can imagine, Deborah is tired 
of these 20 years of oppression. She believes that God is acting in a mighty way in the very near future to bring this oppression to an end. So she summons Barak and asks him to bring his soldiers to Mount Tabor, which is a strategic military position, and wait there for God to lead Sisera into their hand at the foot of Mount Tabor. Barak receives this message and he sends messengers back to Deborah. He says, if you will go with me, Deborah, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. Deborah replies in verse 9 that she will surely go with him. However, she says, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, Barak, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. In other words, Deborah warns Barak, don't do this for people's adulation or for your own glory because you will not find it. You are a mere masculine pawn in this divine feminine plan. And the glory that you may seek will end up belonging to the name of a woman. Deborah then gets up and goes to meet Barak in his hometown of Kadesh. Barak rallies his troops and leads them to Mount Tabor with Deborah by his side. When they arrive at Mount Tabor, Deborah says to Barak, up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. She is convinced that God will give the Israelites the victory over Sisera and his 900 chariots. We read in verse 15, And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, while Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Ha-Goim. All the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. And the 900 chariots that were such a military advantage fell at the foot of Mount Tabor, because the high ground is always the advantage in war. Deborah's prophecy is correct in this story. These 900 chariots do not stand a chance to what Deborah would say is the military might of God. And while Sisera's army is defeated, Sisera himself escapes. He is being pursued by Barak and is sure that if Barak finds him, that Barak will kill him. So he needs a place to hide. In verse 17, we read, Now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. So Sisera goes to a neighboring people who is at peace with his own people, and seeks refuge as he has Barak hot on his tail. We read in verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So Sisera turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then Sisera said to Jael, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So Jael opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Sisera then said to Jael, Stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anybody comes and asks you, Is anyone here? 
please say no. You see, Sisera believes that he is in charge in this situation. And I picture Jael looking at this wounded and weary man and thinking to herself, oh, you don't get to tell me what to do. We then read in verse 21, but Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to Sisera when he was sleeping. She drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground and he died. Wow. Didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> Verse 22, then as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So Barak went into the tent and there was Sisera lying dead with his tent peg in his temple. The story concludes in verse 23 when we read, so on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. And that, my friends, is the end of the story of Jael and Sisera. Now, if that ending seems abrupt, there is a bit of a denouement in Judges chapter 5. Here, we go back to the prophetess Deborah who is elated that her prophecy has come true. She sings a song of celebration that we can sympathize with because he, she and her people have been oppressed for 20 years at the hands of the Canaanites. And while this is a celebratory song, there is a point where it feels like Deborah crosses the line. In verses 24 and 25, she sings with great jubilation as she thinks about Sisera's mother learning about the death of Sisera. She sings, he sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell dead. Out of the window, Sisera's mother appeared, gazing through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? The prophet Deborah sings a few more lines. And then her song comes to an end at the end of chapter five. Whew. This story of Jael and Deborah is a gruesome and a violent story. Now, when we read these stories in church, we expect there to be some moral or application or practical advice. And when you look at what the author wants us to believe is the practical advice behind this story, the best that we can come up with is that God is faithful because God sent Jael to liberate Israel with murder. This is hard for us to latch onto as an application or a moral of this story because we know that this is the same book that contains the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. The sixth commandment very plainly states, you shall not commit murder. And yet here is a woman, Jael, who commits murder and God's own judge and prophet Deborah celebrates her committing that murder. 
It's almost like the text is saying murder is okay as long as you murder the bad guys, which is definitely not what the Ten Commandments tell us. The Ten Commandments are very clear. Don't commit murder. And yet judges seems to offer an alternative and more leeway for understanding when some murders are committed. This contrast between the Ten Commandments and the story of Jael creates an unspoken tension in the Bible. And if you feel this tension as you read the story of Jael, Barak, and Deborah, then I want you to know that you are not alone. And I would tell you that when you encounter tension like this in the scriptures, you should attempt to keep reading to see if that tension is addressed within its own pages. So we turn from the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5 to the very next chapter, which is Judges chapter 6, verse 1. And we read these words. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I hope that these words sound familiar to you because they are nearly identical to the words that began chapter 4. And chapter 4 is the beginning of the story of Jael, Deborah, Barak, and Sisera. Chapter 4, verse 1 says the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But in chapter 6, we don't go back to the story of Deborah and Jael. We go forward into the story of a man named Gideon. And Gideon's story revolves around him raising an army to fight the Midianites. And we read about how these Midianites oppressed the Israelites. And then Gideon led a guerrilla army composed of Israelites to fight for their freedom and independence. And God granted them a miraculous victory. There is less tension in this part of the text. But upon the ending of Gideon's story, we read in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, these words. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Which are the words we read in chapter 6 and chapter 4. In chapter 10, however, we're introduced to a new hero, a man named Jephthah. And Jephthah is, according to Jephthah, called by God to go and fight the Ammonites who have oppressed the Israelites after the Midianites. Jephthah overcomes remarkable odds to fight on behalf of his pe people. He eliminates the threat of the Ammonites, and we assume that there is peace and happiness in the land until we get to Judges 13, when we read the words, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. From there, we are introduced to a new villain, which are the Philistines, and God raised a hero to combat the Philistines on behalf of the Israelites and this hero's name was Samson. At the end of his story, Samson sacrifices himself on behalf of the Israelites, and the Philistines are eliminated. Now, at the end of Samson's story, there is not that common refrain that we read before, but we do read a gruesome and violent story about a concubine who is murdered and then cut to pieces and mailed around the country which starts off a civil war. In this civil war, Israelites are killing each other because they are so enraged at this action, and there is all kinds of death and violence that occurs in the last three chapters of the book.
And just when things seem to be as violent as they possibly can be, the book abruptly comes to a close on Judges chapter 21, verse 25, with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And with those words, the book of Judges comes to a close. Wow. Um, Jeez, there's just a lot of violence in this book. There's no other way to say it. And I'll tell you that in our modern mindset, it's very easy to dismiss Judges as a primitive and barbaric book and to view it as something that should not be studied today. But I have to tell you that I have found Judges to be quite progressive. That Judges actually pushes our conversation forward if we allow it to. And that we ultimately can learn something from this violent book because it tells us a lot about what is ethical today and what we can do to fix it. To explain how progressive Judges is, I want to tell you a story that took place all the way back in 2007. I got the opportunity to travel abroad with my classmates at Montana State University. We went from Italy to Greece to Turkey in a span of three months, and we studied architecture all over Europe. It was the trip of a lifetime. One of the structures we studied was Santiago Calatrava's Olympic Stadium in Athens. And as we were taking a tour of this building, the tour guide informed us that there would be a soccer game this coming weekend that we could all attend because there still were tickets available for purchase. Well, being tourists that we are, we bought some tickets and we were told by the person who sold us the tickets that we should be very careful to not wear any yellow or green to this soccer match. The reason for this is because this was a match between Athens AEK and Panathinaikos, another Athens-based team, and these two teams were bitter rivals. So we showed up to the game, all in neutral colors, prepared to cheer or not cheer as silently as possible in an effort to not stand out at all. We were tourists disguised as boring people. Well, the game started and it became clear that Athens AEK, the yellow team, had far more supporters in the stands than Panathinaikos. After a few more moments, it became apparent that there were no Panathinaikos supporters at all in the audience. We began asking around to the locals why Panathinaikos fans did not show up to this game, and we were told that they were boycotting the game for reasons that were completely unclear to us. A few minutes into the game, Panathinaikos, the team with no fans at the game, scored a goal, which meant that all of the fans at the game became very silent very quickly. It was an awkward moment, to say the least. But then they started cheering again. They started saying things in Greek that I assume were, we can rally around this, we can come back, we can do this. Until just seven minutes later, when Panathinaikos scored again and were up two to zero. This awkward silence was replaced 
by angry jeers from the Athens AEK fans. There were all sorts of loud, what I assumed to be obscenities, being shouted down at the field. A few minutes later, before the half ended, Panathinaikos scored again. 3-0. And at that moment, everything changed. I realized that the section next to us was encased in glass barriers with spikes all around the top. Not only that, but there was a moat that surrounded the entire field to discourage anyone from wandering on the field. I also noticed that there were a large number of security officers crouched and ready for something like this to occur when Panathinaikos went up 3-0. to zero. And when I say something like this, I mean that people started lighting flares and launching them onto the field. They had to delay the game and pause it so that the players wouldn't get injured by these incoming flares. This went on for some time. The announcer in Greek discouraged people from using flares, which I guess you have to say out loud. And this announcement was met with angry obscenities. A few minutes later, the first half ended. And the second half began, and within just a few moments, Panathinaikos scored again, 4-0. to zero. And this was the breaking point. All of the fans started heading for the exits in a very aggressive manner. They were running as fast as they could, and they were running around the stadium. I could watch them the whole way around, and I turned to a local next to me, and I said, where are they going? And the local told me, he said, they're going to the owner's box to either try to hurt or kill the owner for putting together such a pathetic team. Now, I was immediately concerned by this, and I said, are they going to get to the owner's box? And the local said, "Mm, no, watch this. A few seconds later, riot police came out of nowhere and began beating the living daylights out of all of the people who were rushing the owner's box. Those rushers fought back, and we had a full-scale riot erupting in this football stadium. Being tourists, my friend and I took as many pictures as possible, and it was a wild experience. We actually started going over there because, you know, we were in our 20s, and that's just what you do in your 20s. And we watched from the periphery as people started fighting these riot police and pushing back on the shields that were up there. The rioters began ripping apart anything they could take off the building around them. They flipped over vending carts. They kicked people that were passing by. They climbed anything that was climbable. And they shouted and marched and moved in this wave that my classmates and I tried to avoid with our very lives. After what felt like 10 to 15 minutes, the riot police had enough. And they began banging their shields, which indicated something was about to happen. And it scared the rioters away, and they began running in the opposite direction. And my classmates and I did not stick around to see what happened next. That is the only riot I've been a part of in my life, and I will never, ever forget it. Now, here's what's interesting about all this. I went to a stadium with the most anti-riot security measures I have ever seen in my life. There was the moat, the fences, the spikes. 
There were certain sections of the stadium quarantined off where they could only sell alcohol that were meant to be cages that people watched the game in. I mean, every security measure you could think of was in place to prevent this riot from happening. So I pictured the day after this riot occurred, whenever the Athens AEK brass got together, they would sit down and they say, oh, we had another riot at the soccer game. How do we stop these riots? Now, I imagine that someone in that meeting would suggest, you know what we need? We need to invest in more anti-riot security measures. But when I think of all of the anti-riot security measures that were in place at the stadium already, I have to ask, at what point do we all accept that more security isn't the answer to this problem? This riot had clearly occurred at this stadium before. They designed this stadium in order to prevent this riot from happening. And yet, a riot still occurred. It's almost like all of the anti-riot security measures conveyed a message to all the spectators that were at the game that this is a place where riots occur. And the more anti-riot security measures one puts in place, the more the spectators are encouraged to believe that this is part of the culture of what happens here. My friends, this is a cyclical pattern of riots that occurred at this game. And when I think about this pattern, it reminds me of the book of Judges. We're told about how the Israelites sinned against God, which caused God to bring forward an enemy to right the wrongs of the Israelites, and then God brought forward a hero to solve that problem with violence. After that hero solved the problem with violence, the Israelites sinned again, which brought forward a new enemy, which required a new hero to solve the same problem with violence. After that problem was solved, the Israelites sinned again. There was a new enemy and another hero, and so on and so forth. Until it all culminates in that last verse of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now, the book of Judges is a violent and gruesome book. And we're asking the question, what is the point of this violent and gruesome book in the Bible? And what the book of Judges does that can only be seen if you read the entire book is that there is a cyclical pattern to violence. There is this belief and this idea that if we just had a superhero, that this superhero could solve all of our problems as long as they were moral and as long as they were on our side, and then we would have peace and harmony and happiness. But the book of Judges basically says we had superheroes. Everyone was Batman. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And look where it got us. It got us into this pattern where we always needed another violent liberator. And so the book of Judges is progressive because it exposes how violence can solve short-term problems, but not long-term problems. In fact, violence will encourage you to just go back to the same problems you had 
you'll just rename your enemies. There are three things we need to take note of here. The first thing is that the thesis of Judges is that violence is cyclical. Violence will bring us into a pattern of always needing another enemy to fight because it is addicting in the way that we think it solves our problems. Which brings us to the second idea behind the progressive nature of the book of Judges. Here we have this story of Jael, who drives a tent peg through the temple of Sisera. Now, what I find to be fascinating about this story is that the story of Jael completely changes if you read it as an isolated story as opposed to an integrated story in the book of Judges. As an isolated story, the story of Jael teaches us that violence will solve our problems. But as part of the larger story of the book of Judges, the story of Jael teaches us that violence will not solve our problems. So the second idea that we need to pay attention to behind the progressive nature of Judges is that Christians need to learn to read entire books of the Bible and not just isolated stories. Almost all of the books of the Bible were intended to be read on their own because the author is always trying to make a larger point. Whenever we separate and isolate stories or verses from their original works and their contexts in the books they're written in, we run the risk of completely missing the point and even taking away the opposite point that the author was trying to make. Which brings us to the third idea behind the progressive nature of Judges. And to talk about this third idea, I want to tell you of one of the most horrific stories that occurred during my lifetime. In 2012, in December, a gunman entered a school in Newtown, Connecticut and opened fire on children. This school's name was Sandy Hook. And there are few stories that I have encountered in my lifetime that are as grotesque and evil as this one. My heart breaks to this day thinking of how these families who lost loved ones at this school are still suffering from the consequences of these evil actions. This story shook the consciousness of our nation. And there was pressure like never before in my lifetime to pass gun reform laws to ensure that Sandy Hook would never happen again. This pressure arrived at the doorstep of the National Rifle Association. And the NRA pledged that they would support gun reform in some way, shape, or form in the next couple of days. And on December 21, 2012, their gun reform plan came to the surface. Wayne LaPierre, the NRA executive vice president at the time, put into words what the NRA was suggesting to make the world a more safe place. His exact words are this. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And he went on to say about how we should be arming teachers so that that way they could pull a gun 
and shoot at any gunmen that enter their schools. In other words, according to the NRA, this wouldn't have happened if we just had more guns. Now let's talk about what the idea behind this saying is. That the only thing that stops a good guy with a gun is a bad guy with a gun. In this mantra, Wayne LaPierre suggests that justice and peace will occur when the best weapons lie in the hands of a morally upstanding person. Now, while it's easy for us to scoff at the NRA, I have found that the majority of Americans that I encounter actually believe this. After all, this is nearly the plot of every Marvel movie out there. The idea that justice and peace will occur when the best weapons lie in the hands of a morally upstanding person. Not only that, but this is the only way that we can justify spending as much money as we do on the military of the United States of America. This is also hardwired into most Christian theology in America. There's this idea from Revelation that Christ will return as a military conqueror with bigger and better weapons, but it's okay because we can trust that Jesus Christ is ultimately a moral and upstanding person. So when Wayne LaPierre says the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, he is tapping into an idea that most humans in America believe, that justice and peace will occur only when the best weapons lie in the hands of a morally upstanding person. This is the very idea that the book of Judges opposes. Let's imagine what the author of Judges might do if they were alive today. I believe that if they were on this podcast and someone reminded them that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, that the author of Judges would say, you know, since Sandy Hook, there have been over 2,600 mass shootings in the United States of America. 2,600 times that one gunman shot four or more people in one instance. Now, the author of Judges would continue, did you know that in 2018, the USA had 120 civilian firearms per 100 residents? We have more guns than people in the United States right now. At what point, the author of Judges might ask us, are we going to admit that more guns is not the solution to our problem? Or what if the author of Judges wrote Judges in our modern context? I believe that this author would tell the heartbreaking story of Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Then the author would move to the terrible story of Sam Bernardino in 2015. Then the author would set and tell the story of Parkland, Florida in 2018. And then the author would go on to tell the story of Indianapolis in 2021. And then at the very end, without much of an explanation, the author would write these words to conclude this book of stories of these violent and evil acts. 
the author might write, and in the end, there were more guns than people in the land. You see, the third point behind the progressive nature of the book of Judges is that violence, weapons, and murder will never deliver justice and peace. My friends, may we lean into the progressive nature of the book of Judges. May we not fall victim to the temptation to believe that we will experience peace when we have more weapons. And may we abandon the idea that violence will bring us justice. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in the book of Judges. <laughs>